0: Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 1. We are continuing our series, our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to wrap up chapter 1 this morning. We've been in it for five weeks, and uh, it's been a great, fruitful study already. Uh, But while you're turning there, let me just say that I don't know exactly when it happened, but somewhere along the way, the phrase, Come to Jesus meeting... became sort of a crossover from sort of the religious world into the business world and other applications. So an employer, a boss might say something like, you know what, I need to have a come to Jesus meeting with that employee. Or maybe even a parent might say about one of their kids who's kind of going wayward or maybe their performance in school is lacking or they're not engaging in the family or whatever it is, they might say, I need to have a come to Jesus meeting with that child, And the idea behind the phrase seems to be that a serious and difficult conversation needs to take place. The person in need of a come-to-Jesus meeting needs to be confronted with their poor performance or their destructive habits. And if they don't see the light, their job is on the line. Something like that. The come-to-Jesus meeting is sort of a last-ditch effort to get the person to amend their ways, and if they don't, there will be consequences. Now, I did read an article in Forbes this week that said that the phrase, a come-to-Jesus meeting, was voted the most, one of the most annoying phrases in the business vocabulary. So it's already kind of had its moment, but that's not what I was thinking about when I was thinking about this phrase. What I actually find interesting about the expression is that the kind of meeting envisioned by that phrase sounds nothing like the actual come-to-Jesus meetings we read about in the Gospels, those sorts of ultimatum meetings. You're going to be fired if things don't turn around aren't anything like what actually happened when people came to Jesus or had an encounter with Jesus. And the passage we're looking at today describes several come-to-Jesus meetings or encounters with Jesus. So what happened when people did come to Jesus? What was it that brought them to him? How did he interact with them? What changed as a result of those meetings? And the best way for us to discover the answer to those questions is to read the passage for ourselves. So we're going to begin this morning in John 1, verse 35. And we're going to make our way to the end of the chapter in verse 51. This is God's word, and this is what it says. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, "'Where are you staying?' He said to them, "'Come, and you will see.' "'So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, "'for it was about the tenth hour. "'One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, "'Simon Peter's brother. "'He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, "'We have found the Messiah,' which means Christ. "'He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, "'You are Simon, son of John.' You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, out of this passage, I want to draw your attention to four things that we learn about what actually happens when people come to Jesus or have an encounter with him. And the first thing to notice is the simple truth that some people initially come to Jesus because of the testimony of others. So our passage begins like this. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked as Jesus walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples Jesus passes by and John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And immediately those two disciples leave John and they start following Jesus. Now we've spent a fair bit of time already in this series or in this chapter examining the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. But I think this brief scene captures the essence of what John the Baptist was all about. He wasn't looking to build his own platform or his own kingdom. His entire life was about pointing others to Jesus. We were first introduced to him earlier in chapter 1 with these words. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. See, the goal of John's life was that others might come to faith through him. And verse 37 is an example of that mission being fulfilled. When these two disciples hear John say it, they immediately go and follow Jesus. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, that was unique to John because of his unique calling But pointing others to Jesus is actually just a normal part of a disciple's life. Listen to what happens in verses 40 and 41. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew spends part of the day with Jesus, and at the end of that day, the first thing he does is he runs and he finds his brother, and he says, look, I think we found the Messiah. Read through the Gospel of John, and you will find this kind of thing happening over and over again. People have an encounter with Jesus, and the first thing they want to do is to tell someone else about it. So in chapter 4, Jesus is going to enter into a discussion with a woman who's described simply as a woman of Samaria or a Samaritan woman. So she comes to the well to draw water and Jesus engages her in a spiritual discussion in such a way that, that he reveals that he knows her in a way that only God could. And she runs back to her village and she tells everyone what happened. And later in that chapter, we read this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. Now, those individuals are going to have their own encounter with Jesus. They're going to come back. But their initial coming to Jesus came because of the testimony of that woman. And the reason I point all of this out is because sometimes I think we forget how powerful a personal testimony can be. You know, some time ago I shared with you that I've gotten into Formula One racing this year. Now, I doubt very much that I would have gotten into it on my own. I was essentially evangelized into it, right? There were a couple guys in the church who were excited about it and said, you know what, you have to check this out. You got to start watching. It got me into this fantasy league And before I knew it, a group of us were showing up at someone's house at 5.45 in the morning on a Sunday to watch the race, to have breakfast and watch the race together. And that group group just kind of steadily grew throughout the year. I think when we hosted at, at, at our place, we had about 12 people show up for that. This is why new converts often make the best evangelists. People who have had an encounter with Jesus or who've had a fresh encounter with Jesus cannot wait to tell others about it. They want to share their story. Now, I've been in vocational ministry for almost 25 years now. That's how old I am. Our church is now 10 years old. And here's an observation that I've gleaned over those years. The average person who comes to church for the first time comes on the arm of someone else. That's not to say that no one ever finds their own way to the church through an internet search or a mail-out or something like that. But most people who come to church for the first time come because they have been invited by someone else who knows Jesus. And sometimes I think people disqualify themselves from fulfilling that role because they think, well, you know what? I can't answer all the objections or the questions this person might have. Or maybe, you know what? My life is not as perfect as it should be. I can't really be the one to to share the gospel with someone. But listen, we can all do what John the Baptist did. We can all point to Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or behold, the Lamb of God who took away my sin. We can all do what Andrew did. We can go to our brother or our sister or our neighbor or our co-worker and say, look, I I think I found the Messiah. We can all do what the woman of Samaria did. We can go to those around us And tell them what Jesus has done for us. And maybe more simply than anything, we can say what is said multiple times in this passage, come and see. Right? I don't have the answers. Come and see. Come and meet Jesus. And honestly, that might be the best apologetic there is for the gospel. Our job is not to convince people of the rightness of Christian morality, but to point people to Jesus. And some people initially will come to Jesus because of the testimony of uh, of others. There's a second thing we discover here, which is that people can come to Jesus just as they are, but no one who comes to Jesus remains the same. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that Jesus wants to do a work of transformation in each of our lives. Do you remember how John 1 began? It began with the words... In the beginning, right? There's an intentional illusion to the creation account. When God began to do his work of creation. So John begins the same way Genesis 1 begins. Now, if you remember the way Genesis 1 continues, it walks through creation account. It walks through God speaking things into existence. And at the end of each day, it will say, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, or there was evening and there was morning the second day, and on it goes through the successive days of creation. And I want you to notice, John is doing something similar in this passage. Notice the way John walks through these events. Look back at verse 29. The next day, He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And then notice verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. The next day, the next day, the next day. What John wants us to know is that Jesus is doing a new work of creation. And what he is making new are the people who come to him. So let's think about how that played out with the individuals who came to him in this passage. Verses 40 to 42 again. One of the two who heard Jesus, John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew brings his brother to Jesus. Jesus takes one look at him and says, You shall be called Cephas. Now, Cephas, or Kepha, is the Aramaic form of the Greek name Peter, or Petros. It means rock. But kind of an interesting thing to do, don't you think? Hey, Jesus, I want you to meet my friend Joey. Oh, nice to meet you, Joey, but from now on you're going to be called Thomas, right? I mean, it's kind of a strange thing to do. Why does Jesus do this? Well, in the ancient world, a person's name had great significance. It was really bound up with their identity. And there's a great biblical tradition of God changing people's names. So Abram becomes Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Jacob, whose name comes from a root meaning something like one who grabs the heel or one who comes from behind and usurps or overtakes another. Has his name changed to Israel? And those name changes signified a change in character. That God was doing a work of transformation in those individuals' lives. This is who you are, but this is who you're going to become, is what God was saying. And Jesus is doing something similar here. You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now, Peter couldn't possibly know it at the time, but Jesus giving him this new name was an indication of who Peter would become. And when you read through the Gospels, you find Peter to be impetuous and rash. He's always blurting things out, always kind of sticking his foot in his mouth. He's a bit unstable. But whatever might have been true of Simon before he met Jesus, his future became indelibly linked with the mission of Jesus. Cephas, or Peter, means rock. And Peter became the solid, stabilizing force or figure in the life of the early church. So from the beginning of his encounter with Jesus, it's clear that Jesus wants to do a work of transformation in Peter's life. But as you read through the passage, you find it wasn't just Peter who experienced a dramatic transformation or who was radically altered by his encounter with Jesus. Verses 43 to 46 go on to say this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said to him, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Philip said to him, "Come and see." So Nathaniel hears Philip's report, his testimony, and he's skeptical. Nazareth. can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Now, judging people based on their hometown is, is nothing new. I grew up in Burnaby. I grew up making Surrey jokes. Like many of you did, hopefully. Now look, opinions about Surrey have changed over time. But there was a day where being from Surrey wasn't really a source of pride. Now if you live in Surrey or Langley now, you make Abbotsford jokes, right? And if you live in Abbotsford, you make jokes about people from Mission. There's always a place that's sort of the butt end of the joke. And Nazareth was that place. There's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that indicates how Nazareth was thought of. It describes the way Jesus was raised on the run, and it says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you search through the Old Testament prophets, you won't find a specific prophecy about Nazareth being the hometown of the Messiah, or about the Messiah being called a Nazarene what you will find are a number of prophecies describing how the Messiah will be despised, how he will be thought to be of low esteem. The very thing Nathaniel thinks when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Nathanael starts out as a skeptic. He starts out thinking Jesus can't be all that great if he's from Nazareth. But then he has his own encounter with Jesus. Listen to verses 47 to 49. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Now, we're going to circle back in a couple minutes and look at what exactly was going on between this or in this encounter between Jesus and Nathanael. But for now, it's just fascinating to note how Nathanael moves from scoffing about Jesus to faith in Jesus. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And lots of people have traveled the very same path Nathanael traveled. They started out as skeptics and ended up as followers of Jesus. A new movie just came out this week about the life of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is most famous for his Chronicles of Narnia, but the movie is called The Most Reluctant Convert. And that's how Lewis described himself as the most reluctant convert to the Christian faith. He used to say that he was dragged, kicking, and screaming, into the Christian faith. There were some things he just did not want to believe, but the evidence compelled him to believe it. Now, it's not a great analogy, but Nathaniel was a reluctant convert to Jesus in the same way I'm a reluctant convert to the greatness of Tom Brady. Now, if you've been around Crossbridge for any length of time, right now you are thinking like, what, what happened to Lee? Right? I mean, this is not anything we've ever heard. Did he lose a bet? Yes, I did, actually. But, I mean, at some point, you cannot deny the evidence of seven Super Bowl wins. Even if he cheated to win a couple of them and got lucky on a couple of them. Like I said, it's not a perfect analogy. But in any case, Peter comes to Jesus, impetuous, rash, unstable, and he becomes a solid rock. Nathaniel comes to Jesus filled with skepticism and cynicism, and he becomes a fully committed follower. The point is, you can come to Jesus just as you are, but no one who comes to Jesus remains the same. Now, the Apostle Paul, who had his own transformative encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, would go on to say this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I want to say to you, Jesus wants to do a work of transformation in your life too. No one who genuinely comes to him remains the same. Third thing we ought to notice from this passage is that it might feel like we we find our way to Jesus, but in reality, he finds us. Now, there's a lot of language related to finding in this passage. So when those first two disciples leave John and start to follow Jesus, like literally start to follow him physically, he turns around and asks, what are you seeking? And based on their answer, it's not entirely clear that they know the answer to that question, what it is they're seeking. I mean, they're looking for something, hoping maybe they'll find it in following Jesus. Or in verse 41, Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. Now, based on those verses, it might look like the first disciples found their way to Jesus. They were on a spiritual quest, and that quest led them to Jesus. Verses 43 to 45 have a lot to say about finding and being found. Listen to those verses again. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus decides to go into Galilee, and while he's there, he finds Philip. Or did he decide to go to Galilee just so he could find Philip? This whole practice was actually unusual. The usual practice was that disciples would seek out a rabbi and attach themselves to the rabbi. But Jesus comes seeking Philip. And after Jesus finds Philip, then Philip says, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. So who found who? Did the disciples find their way to Jesus or did Jesus find them? Well, in one sense, that question is answered for us elsewhere in the Gospel of John. In a later conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, he will say this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that you should your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So if the disciples thought they found Jesus, actually he says, you, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Jesus actually speaks to the broader issue of everyone who ends up following And when he says this later in the Gospel of John, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now the point here is not my Calvinism but the fact that Jesus seeks and finds us. And the interaction that takes place between Jesus and Nathaniel helps shed some light on this. Listen again to verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So in Nathanael's mind, he's he's going to investigate the claims his brother Philip made about finding the Messiah. Now, he has no prior knowledge of Jesus. In his mind, his quest to discover whether Jesus was the Messiah or not was entirely his initiative or something that took place at the prompting of his brother. When Jesus sees him, sees him coming toward him, Jesus tells him he already knows him. Now, I don't know exactly what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. Right? I don't know exactly how it is that Jesus tells him he saw him under the fig tree and Nathaniel kind of immediately falls on his knees and says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. But somehow that revelation that Jesus already knew him brings him to faith. Nathaniel might have thought that he was seeking truth. But what he discovered is that Jesus was already seeking him. Now, I know if I asked, a number of you could easily give that same testimony. Maybe you felt like you started out on a spiritual quest. But, you know, when you look back on it, you can see all the ways that Jesus was actually seeking you. Even when we were blissfully unaware. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is the story of Zacchaeus. Luke tells it to us like this. He says, he entered Jericho. That's Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully, and when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Jesus stood, or and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For, and here's the conclusion of the story The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus was seeking to see. Who Jesus was, or seeking to see Jesus, but Jesus was already seeking him because his entire mission was to come and to seek and to save the lost. Jesus seeks lost people. Stumbled across the story of William Mackay. In the 1850s, William Mackay set off to pursue his university education in Edinburgh. His plan was medical school, and before he left home, his mother gave him a Bible with his name and her name and a scripture verse inscribed inside the flap. Once in Edinburgh, William McKay acquired a taste for university life and along with it, a taste for whiskey. His appreciation of whiskey began to exert an outsized influence in his life. This eventually led to some financial strains, among other things, and as a way to fund his habit, he sold the Bible his mother had given to him at a pawn shop. Now, Mackay went on to be quite successful in medical school and in his career as a physician. He became somewhat renowned for his ability to save patients who were on the brink of death. He was also somewhat renowned for his lifestyle. He became one of the leaders in something called the Infidels Club, but on one occasion, a man was admitted to the hospital after a serious industrial accident. His prognosis was not good. and Dr. McKay told him, I guess we'll be able to pull you through. patient told him, look, doctor, I don't want any guesses. I just want the truth. You see, I've placed my trust in the shed blood of Jesus. I don't have any fear of death. Dr. McKay said, well, the truth is you probably only have a few hours to live. Is there anything we can do for you to make you more comfortable? The man said, well, in my pocket there is a two-week pay packet. If someone could take that to my landlady to pay for my lodgings, and if someone could ask her to send the book, that would be all. McKay asked if it was a particular book he had in mind, and the patient said, she'll know which book. Now, usually, Dr. Mackay, when he found he was going to lose a patient, did not go back to find the ones he lost. But there was something about that patient and his attitude towards faith facing death that struck him. He surprised the on duty nurse when he showed up and he asked about the patient. And she told him that he had, in fact, died. He further asked, Well, did he get his book? What was it, a bank book? She said, yes, he did get his book. It arrived shortly before he died. No, it wasn't a bank book. It's under his pillow. Mackay went into the man's room. He stood beside his bed, reached under his pillow, and pulled out the book. It was a Bible. It looked strangely familiar to him. And when he opened the front cover, there was his name, along with the name of his mother, and the scripture verse she had inscribed all those years earlier. It was the Bible he had pawned for whiskey as a student. A guy put the Bible under his coat. He went to his private room. He got down on his knees and he asked God to show him mercy for his sins. See, that's the kind of God we have. He is a seeking God. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And he finds us. And there are some of you here today, some of you may be listening, that need to know that God is seeking you. There's a fourth thing we discover in this passage, which is that when we come to Jesus, we will find him to be far more than we imagined. Now, I point this out because sometimes we think that coming to Jesus is the end of the story. We discover who, that Jesus is, who he says he is, and that's it. Coming to Jesus means making a decision for him or giving our life to Christ. It's a point in time and it's over. Oh, I prayed that prayer when I was seven. But n- notice what Jesus says to Nathanael. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That is, in many ways, a great confession of faith. But then comes verses 50 and 51. Notice what they say. Jesus answered and said to him, Way to go, Nathanael. You figured it out. You get an A on your theology exam. Now go and get on with the rest of your life. That's not what it says. What it says is this. Jesus answered him. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, there's some allusions to the story of Jacob and what Jesus is saying to Nathanael. There's actually a couple of allusions to Jacob's story throughout this passage. Jacob, whose name meant deceiver, or at least his character was deceiver, became Israel. And when Jesus sees Nathanael, he says to him, an Israelite in whom there is no guile or no deceit. He was essentially saying something like, an Israelite in whom there is no more Jacob. It was also Jacob who had a vision of a ladder that stretched into heaven. There were angels ascending and descending on it. And maybe Nathaniel had been reflecting on that story as he sat under the fig tree. I don't know. It's conjecture. What we do know with certainty is that when Nathaniel makes his confession, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus basically says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Even as the disciples begin to understand who Jesus is, they just have this small glimpse of reality. And the same thing is true for us. Regardless of how long you've been a Christian, you will not exhaust the riches of Jesus and all that we find in him. Carolyn Sept is working on our Cross Ridge Advent Guides. We were talking about it uh, this week, and I was encouraged to hear that the focus this year is on the names or the titles of Jesus. What a great way to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Now, we are one chapter into the Gospel of John, but just think about the names or the titles of Jesus that we've already encountered. Jesus is the Word. He is the light. He is the Christ. He's the Lamb of God. He's the rabbi or teacher. He's the Messiah. He's him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He's the Son of Man. All of those point us to the inexhaustible riches that we find in Jesus. When we come to him, we'll find Him to be far more than we might have imagined. And if we keep reading the Gospel of John, we find a whole bunch more titles. Jesus is the I am. He's the self-existent one. He is the bread of life, the one who can satisfy all of our deepest longings and our hunger. Jesus is the light of the world, the one who allows us to see things clearly. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one who cares for us. He's the one who searches for us when we wander away. He's the one who protects us from attacks of the enemy. Jesus is the door. He's the one who opens up access, direct access to God for each of us. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the one who allows us to experience abundant life now and eternal life forever. Jesus is the vine. He is the source of our strength and our vitality. Jesus is far more than we ever could have imagined. And my hope for us that we haven't kind of ended and said, oh, I discovered who he was a long time ago. I prayed that prayer a long time ago. There's so much more to the Christian life than that. There's so much more to your relationship with Jesus than that. So let's pray to that end. Father, we do thank you for your grace that has been shown to us. Uh, All of us have different stories about how we think we found our way to you, but the truth is, You were seeking us and you found us. And God, we pray that we would never forget that, that truth that you seek us, you find us when we are lost. And Lord, we don't want to end that journey with just that decision or that commitment we made way back when. We want to discover all the riches that are found in Jesus. And so Lord, we pray you would reveal those things to us that we would continue to grow in our relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.